Well, last week we had learned that the miracles that Christ did during his earthly ministry proved that he had the authority to forgive sins and to give everlasting life. Now today, in Matthew 8, 18 through 22, we learn about the high cost of discipleship through Christ's interaction with two men. The first man that he's going to interact with is a man that I would term the overzealous disciple. The second man will be what I term the underzealous disciple. But from all of this, we're going to be reminded that the Son of Man first came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so what that means for us is that we as true disciples of Christ are also called to forsake our desire for status, and we have to be those who are willing to suffer all for the name of his glory. Now, being a disciple then of Christ doesn't mean we're going to have an easy life in this world, but it does mean that we have the greatest benefits package of all time. And so we're going to learn today that indeed the high cost of discipleship is worth it. Let's begin here. So here we're going to see Christ in the first couple of verses of this passage, uh, Matthew 8, 18 through 19. He's going to be interacting with what I like to call the overzealous disciple who claims that he would never fail Christ because he would follow him wherever he goes. Notice it says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I'm going to pull up my pointer. The first thing I want everyone to see here is that there is indeed a crowd that is following Jesus. And that, of course, is because of Christ's notoriety. He has certainly become famous. However, don't mistake this enthusiasm for faith. The majority report in Israel was that Jesus was not the Messiah. And for, for that matter, that still remains today. So yes, there's enthusiasm. Yes, his notoriety is growing, but that doesn't necessarily mean the vast majority believe. Now notice here in red, Jesus gives orders, and of course that shows his authority to depart to the other side. In the Gospels, the other side is a reference to the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. And so if you've ever traveled to Israel, you'll notice that. Uh, remember Capernaum, which is where Jesus is in his headquarters here, is on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Well, on the eastern and southeastern side was the region known as the Decapolis. The Decapolis was really a bunch of Gentile city-states that were really autonomous and separate from the control of the Herodian kings. And so it is this Gentile side that Jesus wants to go to. In fact, in the next passage I teach you in Matthew, we're going to see Jesus come across that providential storm that he is going to calm, proving that he's Yahweh. Why? Well, because only Yahweh, according to the book of Job, can control the waves of the sea. And so Jesus will do that next time, and you're going to be very excited to see what Jesus can do. But notice here the scribe and his boast. The scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Again, this is great zeal coming from a scribe. And again, the deep irony is the vast majority of the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leadership of Israel, they did not trust in Jesus. In fact, they only expressed contempt in him 
even to the point of putting him on a cross. And so again, this is a minority report. But what Jesus is going to do with this statement is he's going to use it as an opportunity to caution those who would follow after him just how difficult a journey it is to follow in the footsteps of the Messiah. And so that's where we pick it up here in verse 20. Jesus here is explaining the exacting requirements of his disciples by explaining his own role as their humble Savior. Matthew 8.20, it says, Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, notice here in Jesus' response that the foxes have holes, and even the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We see here the absolute humility of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. That he first humbles himself in order that we may be saved. And there's great irony here because here you have the lesser animals, the lesser foxes, and the lesser birds. They have better living quarters than does the Messiah. In fact, remember that the foxes and the birds were part of the despised animals of the Jews. The Jews had their list of despised animals Dogs, by the way, was one of them. I've got a pet woofy myself. I like dogs, but they didn't like them so much. They were unclean. Pigs were unclean, and they despised foxes and birds. So get in your mind that what Jesus is saying to a Hebrew audience is that even the most despised of critters, the foxes and birds, have better living arrangements than do the Son of Man. That's the kind of humility he took upon himself. Now, notice here, Jesus, by using the phrase, the Son of Man, that is the first usage of it in the Gospel of Matthew. And in the Gospels, that phrase, the Son of Man, that you see in blue, is Jesus' favorite self-designation of himself. In other words, he uses it more often than Son of God, Son alone, Lord, Messiah, uh, anything like that. Why? Well, certainly, Son of Man carries the connotation of the humbling of the second person of the Trinity, but it's designed to accentuate that Jesus is the Messiah. Why? Because it is a direct link to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where the Son of Man, who is the Messiah, approaches the Ancient of Days, and he is given a kingdom that will last forever. He will reign in heaven and upon earth and his saints with him. And so Jesus is deliberately using the phrase, the Son of Man, to link himself to being the Messiah. That's what he's declaring. And so he's showing us that the Son of Man, the Messiah, has a very difficult road. He didn't come again first to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so the point is, those who will be his followers, they're going to follow in the same pattern. Suffering comes first, and the glories then follow. Now, as we come to verses 21 through 22, Matthew shows us here what I term, and I don't even know if this is a made-up term, but the underzealous disciple. This is a man who does not want to follow Jesus. He doesn't want any part of this rugged itinerary, and he's trying his best to get out of it. Notice what it says. It says, Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, Permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me 
and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now, the entire interpretation of this passage really hinges on how we understand what you see in the bowl. Now, it seems at a cursory reading that this is a very harsh statement by Jesus. Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth who commands us to honor our father and mother, is not permitting this man to even bury his own father. That seems a little strange. Well, let's dig into this a little further. There's a man who gives us some help into understanding the idiom of this phrase. It is an idiomatic expression, meaning it's a little unusual. The man that I'm referring to, some of you have his books, Kenneth Bailey. He has a book called uh, Jesus Christ Through Mideastern Eyes. And he was a man who lived in the Mideast. He became very accustomed to the culture and to the idiomatic expressions. And so what he would first point out is that this is not a reference to the first burial of this Jewish man that is his father. Why? Well, because if this was a reference to the first burial, the son of this father who had apparently died, he would not be with Jesus nor in the presence of a crowd. He would be with his family. So other scholars have thought, well, maybe this is a reference to the second burial. Now, let me explain the difference. In the first burial, a Jewish family would bury their loved one who had died within 24 hours. And in that time period, the whole family would be sequestered together. And so there is no way that this man would be in the presence of the crowd or Jesus if his father had just died. Now, that led some scholars to claim, well, this must be a reference to the second burial. The second burial would be about a year later when the flesh of the bones had rotted off of the bones. It was the eldest son's responsibility to take the bones of his father and place them in a narrow slot in the family tomb. Remember, families in Israel had their own tomb, and that explains why it was so significant that Joseph of Arimathea gave his away to Jesus. He gave the whole family tomb which would rival the cost of a home to Jesus. That's very significant. Now, what Kenneth Bailey is proclaiming here to us, and I think he's exactly right, is that this is an idiomatic expression that has nothing to do with either the first burial or the second burial, but rather to bury one's father meant in shorthand to take over the family business when the father had retired. Uh, In fact, let me quote here from Bailey. He says, quote, Fulfilling one's filial responsibilities for the remainder of the father's lifetime with no respect, or excuse me, no prospect of his imminent death. This would then be a request for indefinite postponement of discipleship likely to be for years rather than mere days, unquote. A good analogy, I think, in our day and age is think about his son, who takes over the family business when his, his father retires. He is doing so not only out of love and appreciation to his father, but to keep the lifestyle of the family going to which they had become accustomed. That's the idea behind burying one's father. The son was taking over for him, and so the father had become a retiree, as it were, but that didn't mean he was... at risk of imminent death. He may live years and years. And so make no mistake about it, with this proper understanding, I think it does help mitigate 
the harshness of Jesus' response, but don't lose the force of it. The force of it is Jesus is saying allegiance to your family isn't the same as allegiance to me. That if you're going to go and simply further your father's business for years and years, you can't be my disciple. Jesus is not saying that you can't honor your father and mother and you can't bury your family members. What he's saying is don't think that you can run your family's business for years and years and avoid being a follower of me and still claim that you're my disciple. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, dear ones, all of this demands the disciple then to ask the question, where is my ultimate family? Where is my ultimate citizenship? If we conclude that our ultimate family and citizenship is in heaven with Christ, then we follow him as we count the cost. But if we say it's only here and now, we're going to forsake the rugged itinerary of the Messiah and we'll live only for what we can get here and now. That's the high cost of discipleship that I think Christ is calling us to consider. And again, it is a calculation that every human being who claims Christ must make. Now, with that, let me come to some applications with you. I have three of them for you here this morning. Number one, we must know that our salvation depended upon the humbling of the Son. If Jesus doesn't humble himself as a man to the point of death on the cross, we're still in our sins. That leads to number two. We should understand that being disciples of Christ involves the humbling of ourselves. We, as the students, are never going to be greater than our master. If he was the one who first humbled himself, we should follow in his footsteps. Number three, we must always remember our citizenship is in heaven. Again, if that's where your kingdom is, you're going to live for the Messiah. If your kingdom and your family is only here and now, you'll only live for the things of the world. And the sins that so easily entangle us will take over. Okay, let's begin with number one. I want to begin by showing you that the Messiah had to indeed humble himself so that you and I could be saved. And I want to show you a great passage that proves this is Isaiah 53. That's a text that we looked at last week as Matthew had cited Isaiah 53.4. So let me begin today by citing Isaiah 53.1, and then I'll put verses 2 through 3 on the screen. Isaiah begins, he asks the question, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? Now notice the phrase, the arm of Yahweh. That is depicted in Scripture as his right arm, the powerful arm to save. In the fullest expression of God's mighty arm to save is the Messiah. The person and work of Jesus Christ, he is the one who saves. So the question is, who has believed our report? Who's believed this message? It's the narrow minority. Very few will believe, and it's all by God's grace. Now as we pick it up, and by the way, there's a typo on your handout. I had verses 1 through 3 initially listed but I read the first one to you to fit it on the screen. So I have verses 2 through 3. Notice it continues. It says, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. 
He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. The first thing I want to point out is notice, unlike other texts in the scripture, like Ezekiel 17, where Jesus, the Messiah, is depicted as a stately cedar tree, here in the suffering servant patch passage, he's likened to this lowly root coming out of parched ground. And so instead of being this mighty tree that saps all the nutrients and in some sense kicks all the other plants out, he is the struggling little plant, struggling for life whose very survival is in jeopardy. That's the depiction of the suffering servant, the coming of the Messiah. Notice added to that is that there was no majesty or stately form, and in his appearance there was nothing about him that we should be attracted to him. There was nothing about the appearance of the Son of Man that we should say he's the king, he's the savior, he must be the Messiah. He was just a regular Joe. He was truly God, but also truly a man. Now notice here to that, in red it says he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It was prophesied that not only would the Messiah not be popular, but he was despised to the point of even suffering. That was the coming of the Messiah. And recall, the major theme of Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant is going to go to a cross and he's going to suffer to the point of death, being pierced through for our transgressions. That's how much suffering is predicted and how much humility is predicted for the coming of the Messiah. And again, I think this is a major theme that the Jews in Jesus' day had not fully thought of. Why? Otherwise, they would have seen Christ as the fulfillment. Okay, now, I want to show you how the New Testament shows the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, not just in the Gospels, but in the Epistles, that indeed it was fulfilled that the second person of the Trinity, God himself came and humbled himself to the point of being a man and even dying in our place. Notice Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Now, as Paul writes this to the Philippians, he begins saying, have this attitude in yourselves. Remember, yes, that applies to the Christians at Philippi, but by extension, all of us. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, the first thing I want to point out is notice in red, it says regarding Christ that he emptied himself. The verb there for emptied, kono'o, if you're to transliterate that, it's K-E-N-O-O. And it literally means what it says to empty oneself. In fact, it is synonymous with the noun kenosis. Now, the reason I'm laboring the idea of kenosis is because in the 18th and 19th century, liberal German theologians claimed that what Christ emptied himself of was his divine attributes, that he divorced himself 
of those things so that he no longer had them. Well, I'm going to show you that that's an absurdity. Because by being God, by definition, you are a non-contingent being. You don't rely upon anything outside of yourself. And if you have divinity, if you are God, you cannot lose that. That has to do with the aseity of God. And so what the German theologians were claiming is that Christ emptied himself of what's called the incommunicable attributes. What are the incommunicable attributes of God? They are the attributes that God alone has, like his aseity, where he is a self-contingent being, not dependent upon anything else outside of him for his own existence. He is unique in that way. In fact, the very idea of holy being other or different is really first accentuated in his aseity. Why? Because every other molecule... Every other atom, every other existent thing in the universe is dependent, but not God. So his aseity, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, those are the incommunicable attributes that these German theologians claimed that he emptied himself of. So then what you have is no longer a Messiah truly God and truly man, he's now merely a man. And so this theological liberalism then goes across the Atlantic. It devastates the mainline denominational churches so that even to this day, we are still feeling the effect. That's how bad it is. Now, let me prove to you that indeed emptying is not Jesus emptying himself of his divine attributes, but what we would say is his divine prerogative not to suffer and to only live in glory. First of all, notice it says, although he existed in the form of God, Paul is affirming that he's God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, namely to be held on to. So that is the dignity of God who dwells in glory. Christ didn't cling to that but he was willing to humble himself. Now, the proof that, in fact, he humbled himself, notice it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of even death on a cross. So the idea of being emptied is not Christ divorcing himself of his divine attributes, but simply it's synonymous with him humbling himself to the point of death on the cross. Now, the absolute proof of that is notice in the underlying portion. Notice Paul gives this command. Have this attitude in yourselves. This is something that's not an incommunicable attribute, but something we can do. Namely, as Christ humbled himself, notice here, we are to humble ourselves. Let me ask you the question. If you humble yourself and you're no longer arrogant, does that mean you're less human? Do you lose your human attributes? Why is it being arrogant means you have more humanity, but being humble, you have less humanity? Well, it's an absurdity. So then why are the German theologians arguing that the emptying of Christ means he no longer has his divine attributes? No, dear ones, clearly the emptying just meant that Christ humbled himself. And he humbled himself to the point of dying on a cross so that he could take the full measure of God's wrath on behalf of his people. That's what the Messiah came to do. And by the way, the humbling of the Son of Man is a doctrine that is taught all over the Scriptures. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, 
to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. Again, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. I'll show you another text that talks about the humbling of the Son of Man. Now, as you turn to Ephesians 4, 8 through 9, you see the contrast here between his exaltation and his humility. Notice here Paul says, and he's going to be citing here from Psalm 68, 18. I'll explain why, why I believe he does so. Ephesians 4, 8 through 9, Paul says, Therefore it says, when he, and he's referring this to Christ, this is Psalm 68, 18, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Verse 9, it says, Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? Now, I want to begin with verse 8. Notice the phrase where Paul is citing here from Psalm 68:18. It says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. The original context for that was Psalm 68:18, And originally, I believe it had to do with David, who was a member of the Lord's anointed, who ascended to the throne in Jerusalem. And the idea is because David was Yahweh's anointed, as David ascended, so did Yahweh. Now, what about these, this host of captives that he took captive? Well, originally, David took the Jebusites captive. These were the surrounding pagan neighbors that because the hand of Yahweh was upon David, David pillaged. Now, how does that relate to Jesus Christ? Because Jesus Christ ascends not to the earthly Zion, but to the greater one in heaven. And the host of captives that he pillaged was the demonic realm, namely Satan and his minion, because he conquered over them in the cross and in some sense, the ascension is the victory party. That's the idea. Now, what does it mean that he gave gifts to men? Well, originally, I think in Psalm 68, 18, remember Messiah, excuse me, not Messiah, but David ascends to Zion. The Lord is reigning, therefore, through his anointed on Zion. But the problem is he's reigning amongst rebellious people. Well, there was a scholar, in fact, Bob knew him perhaps at Bethel, a man named Gary Smith. He wrote a theological journal article that said originally the gifts that were given from Zion was where God gave the Levites in order that he would receive them back. And the idea is giving these gifts, which were men, enabled the Israelites to have a sacrificial system so that they could dwell with the holy God in Zion. So isn't it interesting, the original gifts that were given were the Levites, they were men. Now, when Jesus ascends, remember in the very next verse of Ephesians 4.10, what are the gifts that he gives? There are some as apostles, some as prophets, some as pastors, some as teachers. They are men who give the word of God that we may dwell with our God. That's the parallel. And so, yes, this is a great exaltation of Christ. But notice in verse 9, it began with what? Notice it says, he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. The one who ascended to the greater Zion in heaven is also the one who had first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And you will see teachers today who will claim that that means Jesus descended into hell 
after his death. In fact, people will cite that in the Apostles' Creed, that he descended into hell. Well, is that what this text is saying? I don't think so. I think the idea that Paul is driving at is that this Messiah who is so exalted that he reigns over all in the greater Zion of the heavenly Jerusalem is the fir- first the one who humbled himself as a man to the point of even being buried in the ground of earth. The greatest exalted one of all time, the Messiah, who seated at the right hand of God first, became a man and died and was even deposited into the grave. That's shocking. What a rise to go from the grave to being seated on the throne over all. That is the paradigm, that is the pattern that Jesus Christ has initiated for his people. It's not all glory all the time. The pattern is we go from suffering to glory. That's the idea. Turn your Bibles again to another passage, Hebrews 4.15. Turn to Hebrews 4.15. We'll see more of the importance of the humbling of the Son of Man. In fact, as you turn to Hebrews 4.15, you'll see why it was necessary for our salvation that the Messiah would be humbled. Hebrews 4.15, notice the writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. In other words, when you and I trust in Jesus, our Savior, we're not trusting in someone who's never felt what we have felt. He has felt thirst. He has felt pain. And he has felt the full weight of temptation. In fact, you might argue he's been tempted more than you and I. Why? Because you and I, as mere mortals, at some point we succumb. But he never did. And so, yes, he was tempted in all things as we are, yet he never failed. Therefore, he can be the faithful son, the faithful representative that Adam in the garden never was. And so why that's so important is when you trust in Jesus, his perfection is going to be clothed to your account. But not only does he give you a perfection that he alone lived, but it enables him to be our substitute on the cross. Why? Because when he dies on the cross... He doesn't have a sin account that he must pay for. And therefore, he can pay for ours. The sinless substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ is only made possible because he became one of us. Yes, he was truly God to save us, but he was also truly man to represent us. And if he was not, you and I would still remain in our sins. And so from that, dear ones, yes, the Messiah humbled himself, and we learn in the New Testament, therefore, those who are going to follow him are called to suffer too. Now, let me give you a quick caveat. When I say that we, as his disciples, are called to suffer because Christ suffered, don't misunderstand and think that I'm saying that we have to suffer in order to atone for our sins. No, Christ did that once and for all. So we know, for example, from the book of Colossians chapter 2, that even if you and I would put ourselves 
in great suffering through self-flagellation, that is of no avail, it says, against the indulgence of the flesh. You cannot earn salvation through suffering, and you cannot earn sanctification through suffering. No, our suffering is because simply we're with Christ, who is despised. If the master was despised, you and I will be as well. Uh, As Bob has often said, the moment you and I believed, you and I were grafted in not only to the promises of Israel, but also their persecutions. The hatred of Christ is extended to us. And so Jesus sets the pattern. The pattern that you and I will walk in is suffering comes first and the glories are to follow. In fact, that's what Jesus reminds us everywhere in the gospel. Luke 14, 27 through 28. Notice here, Jesus says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Now, notice in red, the first thing he says in this text is that if you don't pick up your own cross and carry it, you can't be his follower. Again, the cross here is being used as a metaphor for all types of suffering. So in other words, he's not saying unless you literally are crucified on a cross as he was, you can't be his disciple. Obviously, he is the only one who was crucified and therefore was atonement because he was sinless. What Jesus is doing is he's saying you have to suffer if you're my disciple. In fact, notice in verse 28, he uses the idea of building a tower. Who builds a tower without first calculating the cost? Now, remember in the ancient Near East, towers were used by governments as military fortifications. You could get soldiers up high and they could look at approaching armies. But the tower that's being referred to here certainly was built by a private citizen. And what you have to know is that in the agricultural world of Israel, they would use towers for the hired hands in the agricultural setting so that the men that were hired hands could be at the top of the tower and they could see various animals that were threatening either the flock or the vineyard. And by the way, the base of the tower would be much wider and the hired hands would have their provisions. Perhaps some of them were so big they would even have living quarters at the base of the tower. The point is the tower that Jesus is referring to was as common in Israel, Israelite agriculture as our barns or silos are today. So it was something that they would be very familiar with. And the idea then is that Jesus is saying, hey, no man builds a tower without first calculating the cost. And so he's asking every single person to do the same when it comes to following him. Dear friends, every person on the planet must perform this calculation. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, are you willing to suffer here and now for the sake of his name, all for the sake of the great glories to follow. That's the cost-benefit analysis that everyone must do. Now, one thing I want to point out is part of our suffering in this world is not merely physical. It's also mental, as it were, being humiliated. And the reason I mention being humiliated in the eyes of the world is recall Jesus and his ministry occurred during a period in which the shame-honor society had dominated the thinking of the ancient Near East. In fact, if you talk to the average Israelite during Jesus' day, they would rather die physically 
than be humiliated in the eyes of others. And I say that because some people even today, living in our culture because of human pride, would rather die than be shamed. Um, how many times have you heard somebody say when they're embarrassed, I almost died, right? The idea of sometimes death is worse than embarrassment. Well, dear ones, you and I have to be prepared to have no status in the eyes of the world. And I think this is more important today than ever in America because today it is the common idea that the Christian is wrong, the Christian is the doofus, and those who are the secularists, those who reject Christ, are the brilliant. And so we have to be prepared to be humiliated for our, our following of Christ. Notice here what Jesus said in Matthew 18, verses 2 through 4. We'll be coming to this text sooner or later. Notice it says, And he, this is Jesus, called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Notice, dear ones, in red, Jesus says, unless, here's the condition, you are converted. That has to do with saving faith. And, and to that, he adds, and become like children. Now, notice in this condition that you, we have to become like children. Some have falsely concluded that that means you and I are to be simple and all that fancy book learning in the Bible, that that's not important. In fact, this text has been much abused. I've heard people say, well, I don't really study the Bible. I don't want to get into scholarship. After all, I have a childlike faith, and I want to be obedient. Well, that's not the point of Jesus saying that you must become like children. By Jesus using the term children, he is not calling his disciples to be naive like children, unlearned like children, or to be easily duped like children, that is not Jesus' point at all. In fact, he tells us what the point is, is that we would be humble. Notice it's right in the text. Why? Because children in ancient Israel had no status in the eyes of the world. I know many of you have heard that phrase in our day and age, a child is better uh, seen rather than heard. Everyone's probably heard that phrase. Well, that's exactly true in Israel. Children had no status. They had no claim of being the wise ones. Now, contrast that with what you see in the political world today. The left is always wanting someone younger to be able to vote. I think they're pushing for 16-year-olds. If they would have their way, they would have five-year-olds vote, right? And so to the left, the Marxist, the wisdom is always in the youth. That's not the way it is in the Bible. The child is the naive, but yes, they have no status. That's Christ's point. If you want to cling to your status, the first time humiliation comes your way, you'll say, I'm not following Christ. I'm going with the world. That's not the way it's going to be with the followers of Jesus Christ. Those who live for his kingdom are those who will first be humbled now, but indeed they will be glorified later. And so that leads me to my final point, and that is we all have to ask ourselves again, what ultimate family do I belong to? Where is ultimately my home address? The only reason any of us will be willing to undergo humiliation and suffering is because we're living for the great glories in the kingdom to come. And this is exactly Paul's point 
to those at Philippi. Remember, the Philippians, there was a large Roman garrison there. And what would the Romans boast in? Well, their Roman citizenship. So notice here, what does Paul say? What's the citizenship that's ultimately important? The one in heaven. Philippians 3, 20 through 21, Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Dear ones, notice here, first of all, where is our citizenship? It's in heaven. Now, as Paul writes that, that is not denying that you and I will one day reign here upon the earth. Now, how do we know that? Because in Revelation 5.10, in the very throne room of God, the angels cry out regarding Christians. They say, they shall reign upon the earth. So Paul isn't denying that you and I have a citizenship in which you and I will one day reign upon the earth with the Messiah for a thousand years. After that comes the eternal states, the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. The point that Paul is making is that we have a king and a kingdom that is far above and beyond anything of this world. When Jesus was asked, are you a king? What did he say? My kingdom is not what? Of this world. It was of a higher order. Don't you and I pray, according to the Lord's prayer, that the reign of Christ and his kingdom will one day come upon the earth? Certainly we do. We learn that in Matthew 6. What was the Lord's model prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is a day in which the king of kings is coming and he will reign upon the earth with us. The idea that Paul has is our citizenship is linked to him. The greatest king in the greatest kingdom has not yet come. We have a kingdom and a king of a higher order. In fact, notice the term apodecami is used. We eagerly wait for it. Apodecami has to do with waiting eagerly for something in the future. You obviously don't wait for something that's already happened. And obviously, you don't eagerly wait for something that cannot occur. Are you with me? Then why am I hearing on YouTube where people will say, well, I don't believe that the rapture is a biblical doctrine. (laughs) Really? Why are they eagerly waiting for it? At Philippi, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, they're waiting for the Lord from heaven. Why? Because it's at the rapture that Christ, in fact, will transform our bodies. This is the great glory And it will be conformed to the body of his glory. He will take our bodies in the resurrection and conform them to the glory of his body. Let me explain how powerful this is. Do you remember back in the Old Testament, the Jews used feasts in order to celebrate and worship the Lord? And one of the feasts that I want to talk about is, do you remember on the 10th day of Nisan? Nisan was the first month of the year for the Israelite. They were to select a lamb without blemish. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus Christ, when he comes into Jerusalem, he comes in not just on any day, but the 10th day of Nisan. He came in on lamb selection day. Here I am. I'm your lamb. Now, remember, according to Exodus chapter 12, on the 14th day of Nisan, 
they were to take the lamb and slay it. They were to kill it and take the blood and apply it to the doorpost of their home so that they would be passed over. The next day, the 15th day of Nisan, was the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The very next day, the 16th day of Nisan, was the Feast of first fruits. And the significance of the first fruits was that it was a wave offering, according to Leviticus chapter 23. Now, what's a wave offering? What the Israelites would do, because God commanded that they do this at the beginning of their agricultural year, not at the end, not at harvest time, but right after the first crops were put into the ground, they were to do a wave offering. And the idea is they would just take the first part of the produce, which was very little, it was really scant, because it was the beginning of their agriculture year. And what they would do is they would wave what they had before the Lord. they say, Lord, we have this meager amount, but because you're the great provider, the king of all, master of the universe, we trust you that the rest of the harvest will one day come. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus Christ is crucified not just on any day, but the 14th day of Nisan. He is the Passover lamb. And the idea is that if we as his people by faith will apply his blood to the doorposts of our lives, we will be passed over. And therefore, we enter into the greatest exodus of all, heading towards the promised land. When Christ died on the 14th, that was day one. He was placed on the ground. Any part of a day was reckoned by a Jew as a full day. Well, then he was in the ground the full day of the 15th day of Nisan, the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Unleavened bread was a symbol of sin. That's what leaven was. So the sinless bread of life, Jesus, is in the ground the full day of the 15th. And the imagery is that unless a kernel of wheat dies, Jesus says, it remains alone. But if it dies, it'll bring forth a great crop. What day is Jesus raised on? Not just on any day. Yes, it's the third day. That's important enough. But it's the 16th day of Nisan. It's the feast of first fruits. In fact, Paul calls Jesus in his resurrection the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the wave offering. It's as if we're all saying, Lord, we have this much of the harvest. We trust you. One day the rest is coming. What's the rest of the harvest? It's you and I. It's you and I. Every single person that's believed in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your sex. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how much money you make. If you trust in Jesus Christ, the grand plan here is you're going to have a body like his. Why? Because you're the rest of the harvest. No longer will you have a body that succumbs to disease, that has an achy shoulder like I'm dealing with and a bad knee. You'll no longer deal with death and decay because you're the rest of the harvest. You're going to be given a glorified body to live with ever with the great king, reigning with him over the nations, a new heavens, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem one day to come. Brothers and sisters, this is exciting. And what you have to know is because of this great plan, the Bible is giving us, yes, the command, and even, dare I say, permission to let go of here and now. To say, it's not my home. It's not my kingdom. I'm not living for this. My king and my kingdom is yet to arrive. Brothers and sisters, if you and I will have that attitude, we'll willingly take on the suffering if necessary and the humiliation when needed 
But if we don't, if we don't live for this kingdom, you'll try to get all you can here and now. And you'll live for the sins that so easily entangle us. The battle for the king and his kingdom, the battle to be a disciple of Christ, is a battle to believe the promises of God. Brothers and sisters, let us be those who have counted the cost of discipleship, who have made the ultimate cost-benefit analysis and found that the high cost of discipleship with Jesus Christ is absolutely worth it. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for these great promises that, yes, indeed, the suffering is short-lived compared to the glories of eternity. We do pray, Heavenly Father, for our perseverance as a flock, that when the harsh words and the arrests and whatever may come our way in this world, that we would stand firm in your truth. Lord, we don't look for trouble. We pray that you would deliver us that you would keep us from temptation, as your word says. But we do pray, Heavenly Father, that we would stand firm in a difficult time, that we would declare your greatness, your excellency, and your word. We also pray for opportunity for our, our loved ones, our family, our friends, that you would give us ample opportunity to preach your gospel to them, to explain the greatness of your kingdom, so that they may be saved as well. We pray, Heavenly Father, you would give us boldness, your strength, your stamina, your perseverance until the day you break through the clouds for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.